You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Jürgen Moltmann. Name ring a bell? A name that you probably don't recognize, and yet Jürgen Moltmann may be the greatest contemporary theologian of our time. 87 years old, still going strong, professor emeritus of systematic theology at Tübingen uh, University in Germany. He stands in the long line of great German theologians that go all the way back to Martin Luther. And he wrote a book called Theology of Hope. And Moldman asserts in that book that hope is a unique stance in the world. Much of what we consider hopefulness, he says, is actually, is really just optimism. And while hope and optimism both involve positive expectations and looking towards the future, they are radically different stances towards reality. Optimism is essentially based on extrapolating the future from the basis of our current and past experiences. We develop a set of expectations with regards to our current situation. We add in a dash of wishful thinking that projects a positive future. Hope, in contrast, is not based on the possibilities of our current situation. For Christians, hope is grounded in the faithfulness of God and his initiative in our life. And so that brings us to Advent. The Advent season is about anticipation. How do we form our anticipation? Is it based on optimism or is it based on hope? And Moldman distinguishes two ways in which we relate to the future. He, as an academic, he uses two Latin words to unpack this. The first word is futurum. It involves a perspective on the future that develops out of our past and present and projects our current situation as some continuum into the future, futurum. What is, what was, is what is, what is, is what will be. But then there's a second Latin word, and Moltmann uses the word adventus. Adventus is the future that comes not from the realm of what is or what was, but from the realm of what is not yet. It involves an intrusion from outside, from God. And George put it this way. He said, Adventus is God coming toward us. Advent, then, is the act of living in the spirit of Adventus, the adventure of living in the possibility of God's initiative, of God's intervention. This expectation forms the basis of our hope. So here we are in week four of our Advent series, and we've been following the story of Joseph and his family. And as we've seen up till now, it's a heartwarming story of betrayal and jealousy and violence and deception and revenge. If this story made it to TV, it would definitely be more reality show than sitcom. More survivor than the Cosby show, for sure. And given where we are in this story, is there any reasonable expectation that it's going to end well? 
except for the fact that George read the end of the story in the first week of the series. Bad form, I say. But it begs the question, we know that it works out okay, but it begs the question, how does the dysfunction of this family get resolved? What happens that disrupts the momentum of futurum, that disrupts the continuation of betrayal and deception and revenge? Well, today we encounter a climactic moment, a moment where one of the brothers steps up and steps in. And the trajectory of that family is disrupted. And as a result, the future of this family dramatically turns from revenge to reconciliation. Now, if you would, be patient with me for a little while. It's going to take us a while to get to this climactic moment. I mean, there's a lot of preliminary drama to get through. This story unfolds over three chapters of Scripture. And so, Where we left off last week, Joseph had persevered through all kinds of misfortunes to become the most powerful man in all of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh himself. And Joseph managed brilliantly through the seven years of plentiful harvest, and he created a vast storehouse that provided such an abundance that peoples from all over the regions came to buy grain from him. So... Father Jacob, the patriarch of Joseph's family, he learns that there's food in Egypt and he sends his sons down to purchase some supplies. And when the brothers get there, Joseph recognizes them, though they did not recognize him. And he uses that advantage to play a little cat and mouse with them. He definitely messes with them. First, he he imprisons them as spies. Then he takes one of them hostage and sends them home with instructions to return with their youngest brother. And before they leave, Joseph has his servants replace the money that the brothers brought to buy the supplies with and puts it back in their knapsacks to frame them as thieves. And when the brothers arrive home, they are terrorized by this discovery. And you get the sense that perhaps Joseph is enjoying his revenge. End of Act 1. Well, some time passes, but the famine becomes very severe, and they must return again to purchase some food. Now, the brothers made it really clear to Father Jacob that Joseph was emphatic that if they were to return again, they must bring the younger brother, Benjamin, along. Now, Benjamin is the youngest son, the only surviving son of Jacob's most favored wife, Rachel. And therefore, Joseph's blood brother. And this presents an enormous crisis for Father Jacob. Benjamin is his most favored son. His life is wrapped up in Benjamin. And he refuses to let him go. And it is only on the promise of one of the brothers, Judah... And the direness of their situation that Jacob finally releases Benjamin to go. And so they return. And Joseph is deeply moved at the sight of his blood brother, Benjamin. And he throws his family a great feast. But at the end of the feast, as they prepare to go again, he once again plays a dirty trick. He sets them up as thieves once again, replacing the money back in their knapsacks. 
But he takes one step further. He takes the silver cup from his own table, from the royal court, and he puts it in the knapsack of Benjamin, setting him up as the ultimate thief. So finally, this is where we pick up the story. Shortly after sending the brothers on their way, he sends his servants to apprehend them, bring them back to the city to be prosecuted as thieves. Joseph is judge and jury in this matter, and the verdict for the trumped-up crime is that Benjamin must become Joseph's slave. So finally, we pick it up here in Scripture. Chapter 44 of Genesis. You can find it on, in the Black Pew Bibles there on page 36, most of the way down the page. We're going to start at verse 14. And I really, I'm going to read for us because I'm going to skip through uh, the chapter a bit. And uh, so I just really invite you to follow along, page 36 in your pew Bible. Let's just pause as we enter into scripture to pray. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would guide us in. Help us to discover what you have for us in it and then guide us forth from it and send us into the world to be your people. In Christ's name, amen. So chapter 44 of Genesis, starting at verse 14, listen. Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house while he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that one such as I can practice divination? And Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Here we are then, my Lord's slaves, both we and also the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the one in whose possession the cup was found shall be my slave. But as for you... Go up in peace to your father. Then Judah stepped up to him and said, O my Lord, let your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. And then Judah proceeds to tell the story of, of how difficult the negotiation was with the father to even allow Benjamin to come because The father's love is so wrapped up in this child. And so we pick it up in verse 27. Judah's still speaking. He says to Joseph, Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm comes to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and sorrow to Sheol. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as as his life is bound up in the boy's life, when he sees, when my father sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servant, and your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant, Judah says, became surety, became security. 
For your servant became security for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame in the sight of my father all my life. And here is the climactic moment. Listen. Now, therefore, Judah says, Please let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord in place of the boy. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the suffering that would come upon my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by, and he cried out to all of his servants, Send everyone away from me. And so none of his servants stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Well, the dysfunctional past of this family is disrupted. There is a defining moment here that reorients them and sets them on a new future. And you know, everyone has defining moments. I mean, you all have, I'm sure, defining moments. And one of my defining moments happened on a middle school playground at lunchtime recess. Mikey Gilman was a kid from my neighborhood. We weren't really very close friends, but we were both 13 years old. We were both in seventh grade. And that was the year that my parents decided out of the blue to send me to the local Episcopal church for confirmation class. They decided that perhaps I needed a little religion, and maybe they were a little right. And so they outsourced me to the Episcopal church, and it comes to pass that Mikey was there too. And suffering through that class together forged our bond. Well, Mikey, for some reason, had become the target of this big eighth grade bully. He was a man child. He was huge. He was menacing. And he was mean. And every day at lunch, a group of about eight to ten of us seventh graders would wolf down our sandwiches in about 38 seconds, and then we'd race out to play football together on the playground. Now, it wasn't organized football. It was more like a free-for-all. You know, one of us would take the ball and we'd throw it into the scrum of the other boys at the end of the field. And one of them would, would uh, you know, catch it, receive it. And then they would run around trying to, uh, you know, avoid us and evade us. And kind of like how Golden Tate returns a punt. You know, forward, backward, side to side, re- reversing field, making people miss. Evasion was the point of the game. Well, one day, the big eighth-grade bully guy decided to join our game. And he didn't play it like the rest of us. He didn't play Golden Tate style. He played Marshawn Lynch style. And it seemed that he had it out for Mikey. And so whenever the bully fielded the ball, he'd find Mikey on the field, and he'd start running straight for him to run into, to run through, to run over him. And it was really painful to watch. But none of us felt really that we had any power to do anything about it. This guy was just too big 
to mean? Well, the next day, this guy shows up again, and there's an immediate sense of crisis. We're not quite sure what to do, and we feel powerless to stop him. Our only strategy was to throw the ball as far away from him as possible. But eventually, he kind of got that figured out. And at one point, he fielded the ball. Once again, he spotted Mikey, and he started barreling his way. Now, it just so turned out that I was right there next to Mikey when the guy started gaining speed and and closing in. We all knew what was going to happen, and we, we just stood there powerless watching Mikey get as small as possible. And to this day, I'm not exactly sure what moved me, but at the last second, a few yards before impact, I stepped into the path of that oncoming behemoth. And right before impact, I dropped down, lowered my shoulder, took him out at the knees. (laughs) He flew high. He flew far. And he landed badly. And he lay there for what seemed like a really long time while none of us moved. None of us even breathed. And there was a slight tinge of triumph rising up within me, a sense of the heroic emerging, which quickly turned to terror as he began to uncrumple himself and push himself up from the ground. Now, he was hurt. He had an abrasion all up the side of his face from basically landing on his head and skidding to a stop. His... His sleeve was ripped and you could see his elbow bleeding. His pants were torn and his bloody knee was a mess. And once he got himself fully vertical, he limped over with, to me with absolute hatred in his face. And he rose up in all of his immenseness and he wound up and he punched me in the face. I just stood there and took it. And it felt like my face was about to cave in. And all that triumph dissolved in extreme pain and misery. And I started to do the unthinkable. I started to cry. The very thing a 13-year-old boy least thinks he feels like he can do in front of his peers. And my triumph had turned into utter humiliation. That was a tough moment. But you know what? That guy never showed up to play our game again. And from that moment on, he never bothered Mikey ever again. Crisis resolved. And I learned something really important. Sometimes in life, you got to step up. Sometimes in life, you got to step in. Well, returning to the Joseph story, we see at the apex of this family crisis that Judah, the brother, steps up and he steps in. He made a commitment to his father that, that he was the guarantor of Benjamin's life. So he steps up in substitute 
for the penalty that Joseph was going to bring upon his whole family. Judah's unrelenting commitment to his father and his self-sacrifice in the face of Joseph's demand is the act of love that pierced the dysfunction and the brokenness of Jacob's family. Judah puts his own life on the line in substitution for his brothers, and it literally saves his family. It's a holy disruption. It breaks the cycle. It interrupts the logical trajectory of the family's dysfunction. And Joseph can only respond to this immense love with love. In the face of Judah's love, the dam of resentment and bitterness and revenge breaks. And in great emotion, Joseph embraces his brothers. And from that moment, the process of reconciliation begins. Brokenness broken. Love wins. You might have heard this somewhere. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You know, you can't help but view this story as a foreshadowing of another story, right? A bigger story. The story of another person who steps up and steps in to offer himself as a means of reconciling deeply broken human relationships. Relationships. And of course, it's not just another person. It's the ultimate person. It's not just another sacrifice. It's the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus enters into the life of the deeply dysfunctional and broken human family and offers himself as the great substitution, the ultimate sacrifice for the purpose of reconciling his family to his father. Now, before Jesus enters in, the crisis of the human family had gotten stuck in the character of our holy God. You see, God is ultimately just and God is ultimately loving. And this reality of God's character in relationship to the human crisis creates an enormous dilemma. And that dilemma is resolved in sending God the Son, who steps into our brokenness and absorbs through his innocence all of the sinfulness and rebelliousness of the human family. All of that dies on the cross with Jesus in order that the crisis of our alienation and the dilemma of God's character are fully resolved. Love and justice meet in the sacrificial substitution of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way to peace. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God provides the way himself. He provides the way of reconciliation and restoration for his human family. Alienation is broken. Evil does not have the last word. So that brings us to this Advent to this time of anticipation. 
And this text, the story of Joseph's broken and dysfunctional family, presents us with the opportunity to look into the light and life of the beautiful Christmas story and see it in its bigger frame. The frame of Adventus, this holy disruption of God, this initiative from the outside, this insertion of God's peace in a person. The story that begins with a baby born in a borrowed barn and leads to the ultimate triumph of an empty grave. All of it, Jesus' whole earthly life from start to finish, is lived as a commitment to the Father to bring his beloved family home to him, to heal his broken children. That's the story. And so as we close this time, I'd like to invite you into a time of reflection. Perhaps in this time, you'd like to reflect on an area of brokenness in your own life or in your family or in relationships around and about you. If that's where you're at, then I invite you into this time to come forward and, and light a candle. To light a candle as a way of giving that situation to Jesus. Or perhaps you're particularly aware of evil in the world, the pain and suffering of of innocence, the evil of corruption, the senselessness of of violence or oppression has gripped you. So come, light a candle. Light a candle as a means of acknowledging that before, uh, of acknowledging that, that grip on your life before God. And as a prayer that aligns with the good news that evil does not have the last word. Come, out of your reflection. So let me close in prayer, and then we will invite you forward to come. Let's pray together. Adventus, God's holy disruption, we celebrate that today, Lord God. Thank you for the gift of yourself that enters into the crisis of our human lives, that you absorb the the pain and and evil of this world, and that you... uh, that it dies with you on the cross. God, we pray that uh, you would come and come to us and that you would abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio Email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.